As we come this morning, we come and we ask the question, we begin with the question, who pleases God? What is it that makes man acceptable to God? As we press the issue, as we talk to those around us, as we ask that all-important question, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and He was to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What is the answer that we would give? Many within our culture would give the answer that it is simply because I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I've never done any wrong. I've never intentionally harmed anyone that I know of. See, we fill ourselves full of all kinds of reasons that God should let us into His kingdom, even within the church. There are some who say that the main emphasis of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to give us God's rules for right living. We see this played out even among the Christian church where the Christian church tends to think that the right way to approach God is through what I have done and how I am living my life. In fact, this is the difference between Christianity, biblical Christianity, and the rest of the world's religions. For every other religion in the world tells you what you must do to get to God, whereas biblical Christianity comes and tells you what God has done to get to you. Not what you can do to be acceptable to Him. Not what you can do in order for God to receive you into His kingdom, but what God has done so that you might come to Him in His grace and in His mercy. In fact, this This is the place where the evangelical church, the Reformed church, split from the Roman Catholic church in the 1500s. This is the central core issue for there in the midst of the 1500s. The Roman Catholic church started the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent, as it ran through, described what it was that caused men to be saved. And in fact, it wasn't just in the Council of Trent, but even in the 1960s, the Roman Catholic church once again affirmed the teaching of the Council of Trent uh, and the canons of the Council of Trent as irrevocable. And those teachings said this. They said that man is not saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, but that man is saved by grace through faith in Christ plus works. Oh, pastor, you're overstating the case. There's no way that's true. Well, listen to what the Council of Trent says in Canon Canon 9, Session 6, when it says, If anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified in such way to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. In other words, if somebody says that a person is saved by just faith and faith alone just by grace and grace alone just by Christ and Christ alone and not by faith plus works then he is to be accursed my brothers and sisters this is a danger this is a threat to what to the biblical gospel Because the message of Jesus is quite clear. We are not accepted on our own terms, in our own works. We are accepted by God's grace and mercy. And that is exactly what he is teaching in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. In fact, Luke says in verse 9 that the purpose of Jesus' teachings was to tell the parable so to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He's addressing an issue that is age old, but is still very real and very present and a very real danger for us even today. 
It's directly contrary to what Paul says the true gospel is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even Paul would have been an anathema to the modern-day Roman Catholic Church. The majority of those in our culture and even in our churches think that they will be accepted into God's kingdom based simply on their elegance, their eloquence, and their acceptable behavior. But brothers and sisters, this is not true. For indeed, though we may strive to live by a moral or religious system to make ourselves better and better and to make ourselves acceptable in God's kingdom, nothing according to man's systems or standards could ever cause us to be acceptable to to God. What is it that causes man to be acceptable to God? It is God's mercy and God's grace that is poured out upon the sinner. And when we come with humble hearts, when we come repenting of sin, when we come and receive the grace of God poured out upon sinners, that is the place of salvation. And that is the place where man is accepted by God. Who is it that pleases God? It is those who live by faith and faith alone in the grace and in the mercy of the living God through the person of Jesus Christ. How can we be pleasing to Him? By removing our eyes from ourselves and our works and placing them squarely on Jesus and entrusting every, everything to Him and to Him alone. As we come this morning, let us see that taught here in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And let's stand now in honor of the reading of God's Word as we see who it is that pleases God. Who pleases God? And He told, He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, may You be merciful to us, simply sinners. Sinners in need of a Savior. May You come today and point out to us those places where we fall short of Your glory, where we disobey Your commands, those points and times where we disappoint You in disgrace. Father, Your your name and your glory. Father, may you come and Father, forgive us, wrap us in your arms of mercy and grace, restore us and redeem us so that we might live differently than when than we came in. Lord, we ask this morning that you indeed would be merciful. And Father, cause us to live lives that are founded in your grace and growing out of a faithful relationship or response of a humble heart, a repentant heart, a heart that receives your grace and mercy. 
Lord, may you guide and direct us now as we study your word. Father, may your Holy Spirit come and, and Father, illuminate it and give us application as we walk through it. Lord, we ask now as always that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. We see in this passage today that God's grace and forgiveness flows to the person that is humble of heart, the person who is repentant of sin, the person who receives God's grace, the one who is receptive to God's grace. That's where God's God's kingdom expands. That's how we become pleasing to God. That's how we are accepted into his kingdom, not by what we can do, but by simply being humble of heart, repentant of sin and receiving God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not what you or I could ever do. It is what Jesus has done on the cross of Calvary that makes you and I acceptable to God. And so as we come and we begin today, let us make sure that our eyes are not focused on us and ourselves and what we can do to get to God, but make sure that our eyes are focused on what God has done to get to us as we begin today and we want to unpack that that theme of God's grace and forgiveness flowing to the person that is humble of heart that is repentant of sin and that is receptive to God's grace let's begin by looking in verses 9 and 10 and seeing a parable of two men and two prayers two men and two prayers first Jesus here is using a parable Luke says that he's speaking in a a parable and and you need to you and I need to understand that what Jesus is doing is he is telling a story to show truth so that the people who are listening might hear it, understand it, and then apply it into their own lives. And so when you think of a parable, what you really need to understand and see is that a parable is a window through which you and I see a picture of revealed truth. But the window doesn't stay there. It turns into a mirror. And the mirror reflects that truth into our souls. A parable is a window through which we see a picture that reveals truth about who we are, who God is, and how we are to respond to Him. A a picture where we are watching events unfold, but then that window turns into a mirror and it shines that truth, reflects that truth into the depths of our souls, and we see ourselves as who and what we really are. Proverbs 25.11 says, Like apples of gold and setting of silver is a word that is timely spoken, is a word that is fitly spoken. And so Jesus is speaking to people who see themselves as good and acceptable in God's kingdom. They think their own works can get them into God's kingdom. And so He is giving them a, a picture by which they can see into their souls and understand that no man is ever accepted into God's kingdom on any basis other than God's grace, forgiveness, and mercy. As we come today, I want you to be uh, understanding that, that these two men, as they come to offer their prayers, as they come to make peace with God, these two men have very different approaches. But I want you to understand the point of the entire parable is that no man is acceptable to God except for when he comes to God through forgiveness of sin by God's grace and God's mercy. This, this story is told uh, through the story of two men who enter the temple to pray. They're just regular men. They're ordinary men. They're men with, that would have been uh, normally found within a community like this. But understand, that's how each one of us comes. When we come into this place on Sunday mornings, on Sunday nights, on Wednesday nights, understand we come as what? Just ordinary men, right? Ordinary men and women. 
All of us come on the same basis in the same way. All of us are sinners in need of a Savior. These two men come in and there is no distinction between them. Both of them are sinners in need of a Savior. That's how all of us come. But what we must understand, one man tried to talk himself into the kingdom and he failed. The other man tried to talk himself out of the kingdom and he's the one that's accepted. What an amazing turnabout. The guy who thinks he's good, the guy who thinks he's moral, the guy who thinks he can get in on his own accord, he's the one that doesn't make it. But the one who thinks he has no shot, he knows who he is and what he is in and of himself, he's the one who is received openly. What we see in this parable is a difference of what makes a man acceptable to God. The reality is that if God's grace and mercy is thought of as rain, then these men's prayers are representative of their souls before the living God. Indeed, if we think about it in those terms, we see that there is one who is a statue and one who is a sponge. Indeed, if God's grace is thought of as rain that falls upon each and every person, then we can see two different responses to God's grace and that rain of God's grace, can't we? The statue is hard and it repels the water and the water just rolls off. But the sponge does what? It receives and soaks up God's grace and God's mercy. It lives in God's forgiveness. And the question for us is, which one are we? See, the Pharisee was very religious. He was very moral. He didn't see any need in his life for God's forgiveness or salvation but on the other hand this publican this tax collector this wicked man according to his own people this is a man who was a sponge who soaked up god's forgiveness god's grace and mercy poured out upon him in his life Psalm 51 verse 17 says it this way, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Indeed, we need to ask ourselves, when we come to God, do we come and stand before Him and command Him and demand Him to do things, or do we come before God and cry out for His mercy and grace? O God, a broken and contrite heart, you will not despise. Are we statues or are we sponges? In this teaching parable, Jesus tells his listeners that the man most acceptable to God is the one that is least likely to be received according to the standards of men, according to the systems of man. The the bad man in the story is a sponge for God's grace, but the good man is a statue that sees no need for God's grace in the midst of his life. And so what we have here is a parable of two men and two prayers and two different approaches to God. And so let's start there in verse 11 and 12, and let's see the first, a prayer that is rejected by God, a prayer that was rejected and will be rejected every time it is tried before God. The first character that Jesus refers to is a Pharisee. Now today, you and I, we have a bad connotation for Pharisees, right? Pharisee actually is a bad word within our churches, right? Yes or no? When you think of a Pharisee, do you go, how great are those Pharisees or how bad are those Pharisees? How bad? So these, within our day, we see them as bad. But understand, when Jesus begins talking about the Pharisee, everybody around him would have immediately gone, oh, well, those are the good, respectable guys at church. Those are the good, respectable guys in the community. And so what he is doing is pointing out that God's system and man's system are different. 
And so what immediately would have been assumed is that this guy is a good, moral, and acceptable character that would have easily entered into God's kingdom. In fact, the Pharisee even seems convinced of this himself. It's almost like he thinks God should be grateful that he's even around the temple. Lord, I thank you that I am not like all of these others. Have you ever prayed that? You ever thought that for a moment? Oh God, I thank you I'm not like everybody else. His confidence is in his own ability. It's in his ability to be different from others. And all those hearing Jesus would have thought, what a good person, what a great person. He doesn't rip people off in business. He doesn't cheat on his taxes. This man, he he doesn't cheat on his wife. He hasn't betrayed his country and he's not swindling his own people out of their money like this tax collector over here. This guy's a good guy. If anybody's acceptable, it ought to be him. In addition, he's a religious man. He says, I fast, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I have, everything that comes in twice a week. Think about that for just a moment. The, the Pharisees, they didn't just fast once a year or a few times a year during the course of their life. They fasted every Tuesday and Thursday, uh, at least 104 times every year they would have fasted. To show themselves pious in the midst of the community. Notice, he wants to make sure everybody knows that about him. He wants to make sure everybody sees that. And so he says, I, I fast twice a week. Oh, and I give everything that I owe. I pay all of my tithes of all that I have. Not just on 10% on my income. The Pharisees had figured out that all of the tithes required within the law were somewhere around 23-24%. And so he didn't just give 10% of his income, 23 to 24% of everything he had, he would give to God. Pharisee arrogantly and eloquently expressed his superiority before God over all these other people. He describes his own religious acts. In fact, he, he's lifting up himself and he's making sure that everyone knows how great he is and how wonderful he is. This is self-adulation, giving all the credit to self and none to God. And I want you to see very clearly, this man is a statue who needs not God's grace. And therefore, when God's grace falls, when God's forgiveness falls, he simply has a hard heart upon which the grace and mercy of God run off. We see in the opening verse that this man's prayer never even gets off the ground. What does Jesus say there in in verse 11? He stood and was praying this to who? To who? To himself. He's not praying to God. He's praying to himself. He prays to himself because God's ears are closed to anybody that would come on the basis of their own accomplishments, on the basis of their own accolades. God doesn't want to hear from you how good you are and why he needs to hear your voice. He wants you to know and understand he is there to hear your voice. And you and I ought to be grateful for that. Look at the list. He, he says he's praying to God, but notice he starts with God, but five times in the course of the next th- two sentences, he says, I, 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 I. 
He starts with God and he feigns dependence upon Him, but he never mentions Him again. And he could have written the song that came out a few years ago, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, but I want to talk about me. Is that what your prayer life is like? Is that what our prayer life has been reduced to at times? I think all of us face those temptations. See, we can all do the right things with the wrong heart and still be rejected by the living God. I want you to see that in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 1, uh, in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 and following, it says this, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? These people are sacrificing in God's kingdom. And he says, What does this mean to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my course? I didn't even ask you to come and trample my course. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity, sin, and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feast they have become a burden to me i am weary of bearing them so when you spread out your hands in prayer i will hide my eyes from you yes even though you multiply prayers i will not listen your hands are covered they are filled with blood we need to understand today it is entirely possible for us to do the right things for the wrong reasons and for god to reject our prayers. It's entirely possible. In fact, it is highly probable. What's wrong with those people in Isaiah chapter 1? What's wrong with the Pharisee here in Luke chapter 18? Why would this kind of prayer be rejected by God? First of all, because there was no sense of sin in their own life. And therefore, there was no sense of a need for God's salvation. And there was no sense of dependence upon God and God alone for their salvation. Their egos made made them think that their acceptance before God was based on their own accomplishments instead of God's mercy and grace and we must never walk down that same primrose path to hell let me challenge you this morning think deeply about what it is that is pleasing to God what makes you acceptable in his sight and make sure that your prayers your hope is not based on your accomplishments and your abilities in your own power See, this man's prayer is rejected because he approaches God's God on his term, terms in his own elegance and eloquence, and he is rejected outright. This prayer was rejected by God, but let's look nextly at the prayer that was received by God. The prayer that was received by God. See, the second character now enters, and it's a lowly tax collector. If the Pharisee was seen as a very respectable man within the culture, this man, the tax collector, was seen as exactly the opposite. He was everything but respectable within his society. In fact, they were seen as sellouts, as turncoats. They had given themselves over to Rome, and they were even cheating and swindling their own people, skimming off the top of all the taxes that were collected for Rome. And yet this 
this man doesn't go to the center of the temple so that everyone can see him, so that everyone can hear him. This man comes in and he walks off to the side. He gets down on his knees. He pleads to God. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He is just openly pleading for God's mercy and God's grace in the midst of his life. He understands who he was. He's a great sinner in need of a greater Savior. He, in fact, was pounding his chest, showing that he is grieved. In fact, I I don't know that this is true, but I I would imagine that this is true. Why, even here, 2,000 years later, we always start with the statement, let's bow our head and close our eyes. Because we see the different approaches between these two men. And so... Even today, our culture is influenced by this man who is talked about here in Luke 18. He knew that his flesh was an issue that caused grief to both him and God. He understood that his shortcomings were directly seen within his flesh and within his actions. In Luke chapter, or Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21, it says this, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, adultery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this morning, have you given yourself to any of those things? See, this guy knew he had a problem with sin. He knew that he had a problem with his flesh. He knew that he wasn't serving the living God. And he saw rightly that what was required was a humble heart, a repentant heart, a heart that was broken over his sin. And so he's beating his chest. He's crying out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's great sorrow in his approach to the throne room of God. This shows great respect and reverence for God. It breaks my heart when I hear and see people who do not respect or revere the name of God or the opportunity to approach his throne. And so when people say, oh, he's just the big guy upstairs, or hey, dude, what's up? Or hey, man, I need some help. Listen, that's not how we approach God. We come to God in respect and reverence. God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He starts in the same place the Pharisee started with God. He does mention himself, but he immediately qualifies it with, hey, I need help. Be merciful to me, not a sinner, not just one of the sinners. Be merciful to me, the sinner. He hated his sin, and so he approaches God not through his accomplishments, but in genuine humility of heart and dependence on God's forgiveness, on God's mercy and grace to flow to him. His prayer echoes David's own prayer in Psalm 51, verse 1, where he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your mercies. Blot out my transgressions. That's the prayer God receives. That's the prayer God wants to hear from you and from me. A few years ago, there was a book that was entitled, I'm okay, you're okay. The sad thing is our culture bought into that concept. 
They think everybody's just good, moral, nice people, and nobody's going to hell. But the reality is the Word of God says broad is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life. As we come today, as we think on this, we need to understand that 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 statement, I'm okay, you're okay, is not true, but neither is the statement, I'm okay, but you're not. Because see, our temptation a lot of times is to point to everyone else and point their sin out and show them where they're wrong and what they're doing wrong and how they are living wrong. And what we are tempted to say is, you know what, they need to clean themselves up and get on the right path. They need revival. They need prayer. They need to be made right with God. They need a visit from the living God. But maybe we should just draw ourselves, draw a circle around ourselves and we need to start from the place, from the position of saying, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, O Lord, that's standing in the need of revival. It's me, O Lord, that is standing in need of a visitation from you. We need God, don't we? We desperately need Him. We don't need Him just to show up in their lives. We need, to, we need Him to show up in our lives. And we must understand that those who are accepted by God are humble in heart. They are repentant of sin and they are entirely dependent upon Jesus Christ and no one else. If you desire to be received into God's kingdom, look away from yourself. Look to the person and work of Jesus Christ and His redemptive work there at Calvary because it is through Him that we find out that He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we in Him might Become the righteousness of God. Listen, you and I can never be received into God's presence by who we are or what we do. We can only be received into God's presence by who Jesus was, what he did, and being willing to lay down our sin and give our lives fully to him. That's how the gospel works. And so a proper understanding of who is pleasing to God from this passage is poured out by Jesus there in verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Who is it that's received by God? Who is it? The tax collector, right? The one that everybody would have rejected in that day. He's the one that's received. The other one is not received. He's the one, the tax collector is humble. He is repented. He receives God's grace and God's mercy and he's brought into his kingdom. But the other one goes away to be humbled. Not that day, but another day when he will stand before God and have to face up to every single sin that he has ever committed. See, that day in the temple, he didn't see his sin. He wasn't worried about his sin. He didn't dwell on how bad he was or how much he needed God and God's salvation. He dwelt on how good he was. He exalted himself. But listen, there is coming a day when every man will have to give an account for everything he has done. If you humble yourself in this life and cast all of yourself upon Jesus Christ, he will redeem you and restore you. But if you refuse to humble yourself now and cast yourself on Christ, then and you choose to exalt yourself in this life, I'm not so bad. I'm not really in need of a Savior. I'm not really a sinner like what the pastor's talking about today. Then let me tell you this and let me tell it to you plain. There's coming a day when you will be humbled. 
because you will be broken on Christ Himself. And you will be held guilty for your own sin. Listen, don't be tempted to look at... The second thing we need to see is that we don't need to be tempted to look at other sinners and say, you know, I can't believe they're sinning like that. I can't believe they're going down those paths. I can't believe they're doing all those things that are bringing about self-destruction. Indeed, we don't need to be like the Sunday school teacher who said, oh, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. Aren't you and I tempted at moments to be like that? Thank you, Lord. Not that I'm not like these sinners. Thank you, I'm not like that Pharisee. We need to say instead, but for the grace of God, ergo I. I would go down the same roads. I was on the same path to hell. I was on the same path of of self-absorption. I was on the same path of trusting in myself to be good enough and acceptable to God. But God's mercy and grace found me, lifted me out of the muck and the mire, delivered me from my sin and set me on my feet. And so now I give Him all the praise, all the honor and all the glory. I'm just a sinner in need of a great Savior. Psalm 78, 8 and 9 and say, let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Deuteronomy 33, 29 says that those who indeed have tasted God's salvation should be joyful and triumphant. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. Listen, if you've been saved, if you've been touched by God's grace, if you know His salvation and his forgiveness of sin then listen there ought to be genuine joy in the midst of our lives there ought to be a giving of grace to others around us there ought to be a lavishing of love an outpouring a manifold mercy ministered to those around us so that they can see and know and taste the gospel as well who is it that pleases god it is the one who falls upon the gospel of jesus christ Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, but those who come to Him must believe that He exists and He is a rewarder of those who seek Him diligently. Let me ask you this morning, are you a statue or a sponge? See, a statue is a hard heart. That when God's grace falls and the gospel is preached, it is nothing but hard and callous and the water of God's mercy and grace runs off of it and is shed forever. The sponge, on the other hand, receives and soaks up the mercy and grace of God and lives in it every day. Not only lives in it, but then shares it around, spreads it out so that others might walk in it as well. Listen, God's grace and mercy this morning flow to the person who is humble of heart, repentant of sin, and receives the grace and mercy of of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And my question for you today is, have you tasted and seen His glorious grace and mercy? Are you living in that mercy? Do you have a relationship with Him? Because He calls us 
to come just as you are. You don't have to clean yourself up. Oh yeah, you're a tax guy that's hated and reviled by all of culture, but I'm telling you, just come and spend time with me. I'll take care of those issues. Cry out to me for mercy and for grace. Listen, let's go to his throne and call out and cry out for him today as we come just as we are so that he can pick us up, wash us clean, and make us new. Father, may you lead us and guide us in this time of decision. May everything that we say and do, Father, in these moments, Father, be uh, Father, led by your Holy Spirit. We ask now that you would point out to each of us our sin that separates us from you. That you would point out to each of us the gospel that draws us to you. And Father, that you would give us repentance of our humble hearts that are repentant of our own sin. And receive the grace and mercy that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ even to us. Lead us and guide us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand now as we close with a closing hymn.